many of us, it fills us with hope. And so thank you so much. Um, so we're, we're continuing with our series, The Ways of the Wise. And Nathan did a fantastic job last week and definitely appreciate um, all his uh, his hard work with that. And, and uh, you know, last week was it was convicting, you know, because I think that when we when we talk about money at all, yeah. it can be convicting. However, you, you know, whether you focus on the poor or you focus on uh, uh, what we're going to look at today, it can be convicting. Right. Because, well, you know, quite frankly, we don't want to talk about money. We don't really want to hear about money unless it's say, unless we are, say, are saying to you, go make a lot of money and keep it, right? And so we don't, we feel like we don't want anyone, it's almost like we feel like they're, they're like, we're um, getting too personal when we talk about money. But um, we're going to look at Proverbs 23, um, 4 through 5 today, and... By the way, we're going to look at a lot of scripture and a lot of um, illustrations, um, a plethora of illustrations. And, and by the way, you guys know that word plethora? Yes. What movie was that in? Where is John? Oh, there he is. Said movie, John. Come on, give me a break. What was that, Princess Bride? Could could have been, but I'm thinking the Three Amigos. Have you seen that? Where the where the where the guy that led the the, the Mexican, um, I guess bad guy, so to speak, talked about a plethora. And uh, but so I learned some of my words from TV. But um. So, again, these last two weeks of the Ways of the Wise, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at um, money and what we can do with money and our wealth. And, and uh, what I want us to walk away with this morning is that the wise person, right, understands the corruptibility of wealth. Right? They understand the corruptibility of wealth. If, if we fight against that understanding that I think it has to do something with a lack of wisdom. Um, and so Jesus, well, not Jesus, but Paul said in uh, Acts 20, 35, and we're going to come back there, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So consider this. this there's this article that I actually looked at on the way to church this morning. And it talks about talks about the, the title of the article is How Rich Are Americans on a Global Scale? And I'm just going to read just some of the beginning here to you, and then I'm going to show you uh, some numbers. It says, the United States of America is known as the land of opportunity. I believe anyone can do financially well in America, and Americans have done very well financially when compared to the rest of the world. Americans dominate any global rich rich lists out there. Additionally, Americans are at the tip-top of the wealth pyramid. Take the latest Forbes World's Billionaires list in 2022, for instance. There are 2,668 billionaires in the world, 
and 735 of them are Americans. This means that 27.5% of the world's billionaires are American. The collective net worth of American billionaires, 4.7 trillion, makes up 37% of the total net worth of the world's billionaires, which is $12.7 trillion. Eight out of the top 10 billionaires are Americans. It probably doesn't come as a surprise to most of you that the richest Americans are currently doing very well. But what about the rest of America? The average American is doing just fine when compared to the rest of the world. In fact, based on net worth and income, you can consider the average American to be among the global rich. American household income, right, in 2021, the the United States Census Bureau provides household income information on an annual basis. And the latest household income um, is for the year 2021, right? And so we're going to take a look at some numbers here. And you may not be able to see this, but I'm going to read some of this to you. Um, And these numbers are amounts earned by the entire household, and not income earned by an individual. So in 2021, household income at selected percentiles in the US, 10% earn around $15,660. Let's jump to the middle of that, the median, 50%, 70,784, right? And at at, at 95%, um, 286,304. So how, how this table basically works is, is as it says there at the bottom, if you make a hundred and um, one hundred and thirteen thousand two hundred and ten dollars, you make more than 70% of all households, which places you in the top 30% of earners in the United States. That's amazing. Because when we look at even an income level of $40,000, right, that individual making $40,000 earns more than 30% of all the households, which places them at, at you know, in a, in a, in a certain um, income range as well. Why do, I, why do I show that? Why do I say that? I say it to make the point that when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, pretty much everyone in this room is rich, is wealthy. You may not look at your finances and and think (laughs) I'm, I'm wealthy, right? But compared to the rest of the world, you have great wealth, right? Now, compared to the United States of America where we live, maybe not so much. But I want us to consider the fact that in the United States, we do very well, right? You know, children are often asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And many little kids, they respond, you know, I want to be a firefighter. I want to fight fires for a living. And there's something attractive about being heroic, right? 
There's something attractive about about being a firefighter or a police officer and being the hero, coming out the hero, and driving a big red truck down the street, making all this noise, right? Some kids, they they some kids they just want to drive that fire truck and make a whole lot of noise. But did you know? Of the over 1 million firefighters in the United States ser- serving families and businesses at some of the most anxious times in, the, in their lives, that only 31% of them get paid. 31% of the firefighters that risk their life in the United States get paid. 69% of firefighters are volunteers. 98.3% of fire departments in the state of Delaware, for instance, are comprised of volunteers. They're mostly volunteers risking their life for no pay. So why do they put their lives at risk? Why do you think they put their lives at risk? I believe it's because they love their neighbors. I mean, how do you put your life at risk if you don't love? How do you put your life at risk and give so much to your community if you don't love? Every Christian is called to sacrifice to serve others. And so how can we as a church serve our community at at the time when it is most at risk. We can do. There are different things that we can do. Nathan talked about serving the poor um, last week, but there are different things that we can do. We can donate to schools, right? There are many schools in some areas that don't have books for the kids, all right? Yes, we live in America, and that is something that happens here in America, like it does in third world countries, right? We can donate those things, and that costs money, right? Um, here in Alabama, we hear a lot about people losing homes and losing their belongings because of tornadoes. We can donate to those people as well. We can. It doesn't mean that we give them cash, but what about giving them like we did the other day with someone gave them or gave her a mattress, right? Um, for a different purpose, not not that she lost it in a tornado, but but giving things like that of our time and of our expenses, I think, shows that we love people. When we hold on to the things that we have, what does that express to the world and what does that express to our community? We think about even the even the ramps that we had that were built for us. Those were donated, right? How awesome is that? That that was don't we can donate things to churches as well. Sometimes I think we're very consumed with our body, our church body. Meanwhile, there are other churches out there that are serving God's people that we can help to. And so what I'm, what, what I'm saying here is, how do you use your wealth? How do you use the wealth that God has given you, that God has allowed you to have? You know, um, John Piper, he's an author I, I love uh, some of the books that he's written. One of the things that he says is, um, can you guys get the next slide for me, please? Um, it says the same writer of John three sixteen says in John in First John four eight, 
that God is love. Which I take to mean at least this. Giving what's good and serving the benefit of others is closer to the the essence of God than getting and being served. God is without needs. God inclines to meet needs. God is a giver. God is love. And so if we're imitating God, then what are we doing? To become like the image of the Father is to give. To become like the image of the Father is to give to others, to give for others. At great personal cost. See, that last part there is what's challenging. Right? Some of us, yeah, we we do fairly well giving, right? But when it's at great personal cost, that's where we sometimes start slowing down, right? Like... Like, let me, let me think about what I'm giving here for a second. Because that's kind of painful. And I didn't expect this giving to be painful. I expected to give with joy. Right? And so giving with joy means I don't feel pain. Right? But God gave with great personal cost. When God... The Bible says that God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his one and only son, right? Now, God is a giver that he would give something so precious to sinners, not expecting anything back, not expecting that they would even love him. That was not the expectation, right? So we have a God who is a giver. And it was at a great personal cost for him to give his son in the way that he did. And now if we're imitating God and we're imitating who he he is, in essence, love, then what are we doing with what we have? When it's time to give, do we close our fists for a second and say, well, let me consider this a little bit. Let me just make sure it's not going to hurt too much. We got to be careful about that, brothers and sisters, because that is not the heart that God has. It's a costly and powerful way to love. Let's turn our Bibles to Proverbs 23, starting in verse 4. It says, do not, well, actually, before I do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer, God, just so grateful for your word. We're grateful for this time that we get to spend with you in your word, Father. I pray that this message will not be mine, but it will be yours. That the Holy Spirit will lead us. I pray that those who are listening to this message, that the Holy Spirit will guide their hearts to open wide up and accept your word. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. And so in Proverbs 23, starting in verse 4, what does it say? It says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. So this passage 
It functions as a warning, right? It functions as a warning against greed, the love of money, and pursuit of riches. And Jesus himself warned us. Jesus warned us about this. He warned his followers of the trappings and the pitfalls of wealth. And he famously stated that in in Matthew 19, verse 24, it says, Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Very challenging. See, the thing is that wealth has a corrupting power and tendency about it. I'm not saying that if you are wealthy, then that's bad. But what I'm trying to put across is be careful of the love of that wealth. Be careful of the love of money. Because it has this corrupting power, this corrupting tendency. And it can weaken our reliance on God and undercut our loyalty to him. You know, the wise person, again, like I said, will understand this. And so this corrupting power that wealth carries with it, and by the way, that does not corrupt everyone, right? This corrupting power that God car- that, that wealth carries with it, where does that come from? I believe it comes from us because we give power to money. We are the ones that are responsible for that. And, and Paul has a lot to say about this as well in 1 Timothy 6.10. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning, guys. 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, now check this part out. Sometimes we stop at that. Like I hear this verse quoted and we stop at, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we just stop. But listen to what he follows, follows with. He says, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's this eagerness for money, this love for money that, that what it, does it do? It kind of shields and blocks off all other responsibility with God. You know, Paul states that it's the root of all kinds of evil. You know, a, a, a root is what gives life to a plant, right? And so it's not readily visible. Like you don't walk outside and see this big, beautiful tree and say, oh, look, pretty cool root. No, you don't see it. You, you don't see what's happening underground, right? Because it's buried beneath the surface of the earth. And the love of money is a type of sin that may not be readily visible to others. But it gives life to other sins. And so it, it grows Right? It's, it's under the earth, and what happens is, is it's not visible to everybody, but guess what? It can lead to other things like greed, lust, covetousness, right? which is basically feeling or having a, a strong desire for what somebody else has. You ever been through that? You ever fall into that? Like you see some, some somebody, you know, you're driving this jalopy, you see somebody zoom past you in this nice car, you're like, man. 
they're breaking the speed limit. I need to call the cops. You just have this thing like, man, I want to get back at them, right? Because your car is, is putting along, you know, coughing out smoke, and, and you're like, oh, golly. Go to a restaurant, you're sitting there, and you're like, all right, eh, I'm broke. I'm just going to have a salad. And somebody comes next to you, sitting next to you with this big, fat steak. And you're like, can you sit somewhere else? You know what I mean? Like, and these, these feelings that you have, like, because you know you're in dire straits. You're in trouble. You're in Barney. Right? Any? Anybody? Rubble? Trouble? I got you. I'm with All you. Right. I'm with you, bro. Right? And so and so you're you're in trouble and you're just like, man, what do I do? Right? And then somebody has to show up. Life is so fantastic. I have all this thing going on for me. You're just like, oh. That's being that's covetousness. And just because they have it. You should have it too. And so this has been this has been the death of many, guys. This has been the struggle of so many people. It's a slow wandering away that we seldom even realize because because of how normal it seems. It just seems like it's this normal thing. And so it's just easy to wander away. It's like a slow burn. It's like such a slow burn that you don't even recognize it's happening. Folk wisdom used to say that when you when you boil you a frog, poor fella, you don't throw it directly into the boiling water. Instead, you throw it into room temperature water and gradually turn up the temperature. Doing this will allow the frog to get comfortable to the point where it doesn't even realize that it's being boiled. While later science, later science discovered this wasn't the case, right? And it still, but it still makes a helpful image of Christian, of a Christian in relationship with idolatry. It's this slow burn. You idolize money and it's this slow burn. It's this thing where, oh, I'm so comfortable, I'm doing so well, things are going great, right? And it's a slow burn spiritually. Maybe not financially for you, but spiritually. It's this slow wandering away, this slow burn, because you're you're so focused on, oh, I'm so comfortable, let me go make more. Let me go make more and put it in my pocket. You know, Leo... Leo uh, Tolstoy is one of my favorite authors, right? Russian. Yeah, wrote some great, great things, War and Peace and different things like that, some classics that we may know. But he also, he also wrote this uh, short story um, called, I believe it was called, I didn't write it down, but I believe it was called... Uh, he has too much land or something like that, right? But I'll tell you the, the it was called, um, how much land is does a man need? I actually have it right here in the slide. Right, how much land does a man need? 
And here's, 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 here's what that short story was about, right? Is that a successful peasant farmer who was not satisfied with what he had, he wanted more of everything. And the story starts out with, you know, he's, he's laying down like, you know, in his house and, and his wife's sister comes over and she's just talking about how grand things are for her. And how great everything is for her, right? And she's kind of boasting to her sister and saying that, oh, you guys, you, you know, you guys have to be out there. You know, you have your pigs and all this stuff. And sometimes you got to lay on the hay and all that. And the, and the sister's like, well, we enjoy that. That's good for us. You know, we, we enjoy the, the farm life that we have. And so this other lady's like, well, it's not as good as, as how I'm living. So now this whole conversation and the story talks about that Satan was kind of hiding behind uh, the oven or something like that, right? Just kind of listening to this whole conversation. And so, um, you know, this, this whole conversation kind of gets to this farmer. And it starts to get to his heart. And one day he received this interesting offer, Right? from another landowner because he just felt like I have to have more land, I have to have more land, I have to have more land. And so he receives this offer. And the offer was this. It says for 1,000 rubles, right, which is Russian uh, money, you could buy all the land, that he could buy all the land he could walk around in a day. In one day, right? So what does he do? Well, the only, well, by the way, the only catch in the deal was that he had to be back at his starting point by sundown. So he had to walk a circle, basically, around this land that he would want, right? And so early the next morning, he started out walking at a fast pace. And by midday, he was very tired. But he kept going. He kept walking, right? And covering more and more ground. As he walked, well, into the afternoon, he realized that his greed had taken him far from the starting point, which he had to be back at later on. And so he quickened his pace and he's he's moving faster and faster. And as the sun began to sink low in the sky, he began to run because he's like, man, I got to get that because I need this land. I want this land. Right. And so he's running and he's running, trying to get trying to get back as fast as possible. And knowing that if he did not make it back by sundown, the opportunity opportunity to become an even bigger landowner would be lost. Now, remember, he already had land as a farmer, but he just wanted more and more and more and more. And so as the sun began to sink below the horizon, he came within sight of the finish line. And he's like, oh, yes, this is fantastic. I'm about to get all this land. And he starts dreaming in his head about, oh, yes, this is going to be so great. Everybody's going to look at me and I'm going to be awesome. And, you know, he's thinking all these things. But but gasping for breath, his heart starts pounding. And he called upon every bit of strength left in his body and staggered across the line just before the sun disappeared. He made it. He gets across the line. But he immediately collapsed, blood streaming from his mouth. And in a few minutes, he was dead. Afterwards, the servants 
dug a grave for him. And this is how the story ends. The story ends with this, they posted this line where it says that the grave that they dug for him in the earth, on the land, was not much over six feet long, three feet wide. And so it leaves you, the story leaves you to think. The story leaves you to think, how much land does a man need? How much land does a man need? It's kind of comical. It's kind of funny. But the fact of the matter is he ended his life six feet long, three feet wide. That was his land. And so maybe we only need six feet by three. Maybe that's what we really need. But we want a whole lot more. Now, are we going to kill ourselves to get all that? And so Satan will try to deceive us into thinking that we need more and more and more and more and that there is indeed a way to get more. Because he looked at it, he's like, oh, this is the way I'm going to get it all. Remember, he had land already. And if you read the story, he then bought land and bought land again. So he had a lot of land, but he just could not resist this offer. Because he thought it would come so easy. Is your money causing a slow burn? Is your love for money giving life? to other sins in your life. Got another illustration for you. There's some things to think about, guys. Before a teenager gets his or her driver's license, pretty happy for Sierra, she got hers, and Travis is working on his, and and Kai might be working on his soon. But before a teenager gets their driver's license, he or she is dependent on what? Others. To give them rides, right? And so, if he doesn't, if he or she doesn't want to walk to to a public place, or I mean, I'm I'm sorry, they don't want to walk or take uh, public transportation or take Uber or 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 somebody else, uh, a friend, uh, takes them to their friend's house or the mall or wherever they want to go. Guess what? They got to rely on somebody for rides, right? But once they get their license, everything changes. Once they get their license, everything changes. They're they're independent now, right? And, And they no longer have to wait on anybody. They no longer need the parents or friends to give them help to get around town anymore. They're now what? Self-reliant, right? And so people who become wealthy, they often feel the same way and experience the same kind of change or transformation. And this can have a negative impact on our relationship with God. Because before finding wealth, a person may feel a need for God, right? Before they feel like, oh, I'm wealthy now, they feel this need for God In a very profound way. But once this person gains wealth, 
he may no longer feel such a need. Right? All of a sudden, it's a slow burn. It's a wandering away because of where they are with their wealth and how they view wealth. Again, I'm not saying this is everybody, but it's, it happens quite often. And so instead of relying on God, like, like that person's accustomed to, he now relies on money and self. He's now self-reliant, right? And so what does Paul say about that? Here's what he says. He says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So what is the sin? It is the love for money. It's the love for money. It's idolizing money. And so I call us to be careful that the love of money and the pursuit of wealth can lead to idolatry, right? And Jesus said it, and here's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Only one, right? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so, which one do you serve? When we love money more than we love God, we fall into blatant idolatry. Moreover, when we are more devoted to money than we are to God, we treat money as if it were our God. Bowing down to it and worshiping it. Whenever money is viewed as an end in itself, as our primary goal and end in life, money has become our God, our false God. And so it simply cannot be true. Money can't be, can't, money can't buy true and lasting fulfillment and happiness. Can't do it. Many people expect that money will, but it will not buy true and lasting fulfillment. And that is what Proverbs 23, 5, 23 verse 5 is, is stating. It's attempting to communicate to us that money, along with the promises it makes and the happiness it brings, is fleeting. It's fleeting. Again, Proverbs 23, verse 5, it says, Cast but a glance at riches, but a glance at it, and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Just glance at it, and it's gone. And so how can that bring happiness? How can you be secure in something like that? Rather than being secure in God who is there all the time. Because we can toil, we can work hard, we can give our entire life, we can we can work like the like like the story just told us, we can work until we die. It ain't going to last. So why do we do that? Almost everyone is uh, familiar 
with the tragic story of, of the Seattle uh, grunge um, rocker, Kurt Cobain. You know, he's this eclectic frontman uh, for the early 90s uh, three-piece band called Nirvana. And a band that would change the sound of rock music forever, right? And Cobain grew up in this small town, right? It's this very, very tough town um, called Aberdeen, which is about 100 miles uh, southwest of Seattle in the state of Washington. And, and he came from a poor household. And in a lot of ways, Cobain's story is a rags to riches type of story. And when his band released the album Nevermind with uh, DGC Records in September of 1991, his life was simply never the same. Talk about wealth. In what seemed like an instant, he moved from obscurity to fame and from poverty to riches. But money, unfortunately, did not make Cobain happy. His lifelong struggle was depression. And it was exacerbated by any infamous, by, by his infamous heroin addiction. And so on April, April 5th, 1994, the wealthy but troubled 27-year-old rock star died by suicide. And so on that day, Cobain's name was added to a long list of rich and famous people, celebrities who ultimately chose to take their own lives, though they had all that money. And so in one of his final interviews before his tragic suicide, he explicitly stated to the person doing the interview, this is on YouTube, you can watch it if you'd like. He explicitly stated that money can't buy happiness. He had a wife, he had a child. And so I say this in order to illustrate, be careful how we think about money and wealth. Remember, it's coming from God. It's really not yours. You are, you are mere stewards of what God has allowed you to have. Now, as a steward, what will you do with that? One of the best things that a wealthy person can do is to live open-handedly and to give to others, to share resources, to be generous. When we use our money to help and serve others, we experience blessing from God. You know, and I'm not just talking about helping the poor with money. You know, Paul, Paul once said, as we read in the beginning, that in, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so we, we look here now at Jesus' example, and we, we're going to end with Jesus' example here. You know, Paul states elsewhere as well that Christ became poor. He became poor so that we could be rich. 
Now put that in perspective, right? That he would he would allow himself to be poor so that we could be rich. Second Corinthians eight verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Through what? His poverty. So don't you think he's setting this example here? There is immense generosity. However, in the in the very giving of himself, Jesus experienced the lavish and abundant riches of God. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it says, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Right? To be used to his own, I'm sorry, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now think about a servant for a second. What does a servant's life look like? It's not about him. It's about who he's serving. Right? We talk about Jesus as a servant. We talk about even servant leadership. Right? It's not about us. It's about the people we serve. That is Jesus' example. So whether you have a lot or you think you have a little, who are you serving? And it says in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So there's some humility there, right? Take some humility. How many of us are willing to make ourselves nothing for somebody else? How many of us are willing to make ourselves so insignificant as to be a servant of somebody else? There is a reward for that. In verse 9 it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so similarly, when we, when we give to others, we receive the blessing of God, the true and lasting joy of God, which will not flee, it won't vanish, and it won't fade. So let us look to give and not just receive. Let us not allow Satan to deceive us about wealth, telling us that we need more and more and more for us. Or rather, let us practice the ways of the wise, imitating God's giving heart. And to God be the glory. Amen. Amen.